episode 29 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to continue discussing fundamental backflow and cross-connection issues with Gary, the backflow nerd, McLaren at HydroCorp, and Rich Davison of Salter Home and Associates, a plumbing products agency located in Ramsey, Minnesota. Hi, Heather. Hey, Rich. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, Heather. It's great to be back. Yes. Awesome. And let me tell you a little bit more about these two gentlemen. Uh, Rich is a consultant with the waterworks supply chain industry since the early 1990s and specializes in system integration and solutions to maintain safe drinking water throughout hospitals, institutions, and manufacturing facilities. Rich has also co-instructed numerous 40-hour courses that has resulted in over 450 state certified backflow preventer tester professionals in Wisconsin and Minnesota. So we are so glad to have you with us, Rich. Thank you, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here today. And we're going to reintroduce Gary real quick. He started with HydroCorp in 2005 and has experienced many aspects of the company, from inspecting over 4,000 commercial and industrial facilities from unprotected backflow hazards consulting that led to the adoption of over 110 Midwestern Municipal Water System cross-connection control programs to the development of safewateredu.com. Gary is certified in cross-connection control surveying and backflow prevention program administration by the American Society of Sanitary Engineering. So we're glad to have you back, Gary. Pleasure to be here. Gentlemen, I have heard that you two have co-instructed over 150 backflow prevention and cross-control classes over the last 10 years. What keeps you passionate about this? (laughs) (laughs) Gary, I'll let you go first on this. Oh boy, Rich, it's been an interesting road since 2012. We did that first class in central Wisconsin. What keeps us passionate? You know what, Heather, each class we do, it's like the first one we ever shared together with the the students and with Rich and myself. It's amazing that on this topic, cross-connection control and backflow prevention, that the fundamentals are so critical for public water systems to get right and so that their staff are educated. And so people that are working with backflow preventers, installing them, maintaining them, and testing them usually on an annual basis, Mm -hmm is so critical that they have the fundamental knowledge down pat. And that's what we really focus on on our classes. And wow, Rich, I think I had a little bit of hair uh, when we first started class uh, classes back in 2012. Well, I have less hair, uh, <laughs> not not quite as less as what you have, but, oh. but I'm, I'm going in that direction, Gary. <laughs> you know, one thing that's uh, interesting to think about in terms of passion is that while the curriculum is essentially the same going from class to class, but every time, and Gary, correct me if I'm wrong with this, but every time is slightly different. We have the variable, the variable of the students. Uh And so we'll have folks from different parts of the industry. We'll have plumbing contractors. We'll have fire protection fitters. We'll have people from uh, the industry, from hospitals and healthcare and so forth. And so they they give the mix. And so even though Gary and I have basically the same the same presentation each time, but the the students give it the variable to keep it very interesting. Yeah, and you know, I'll add one more thing. Heather, uh-huh. Is this topic applies wherever it is taught, wherever we go, it, you can apply mm-hmm. cross connection control education wherever you go because pressurized water in piping systems 
is prone to backflow. It's a hydraulic, it's an inherent hydraulic problem that we're dealing with. And spreading the news about that, it seems to be contagious. Wherever we go, we're looking at pipes and talking flow preventers and, and best practices. So Perfect. It's, a, it's a pretty neat thing to nerd about. I remember the other day, Heather, <laughs> when we were talking, you said, let's nerd out again on backflow. No problem here. All right. That's perfect. Well, and before we get going, just in case someone just picks up this episode, I want to have a quick definition of cross-connection and backflow, what those are. Yeah. You know, cross-connections, uh, those are the intentional and sometimes accidental connections to our drinking water supply, whereas uh, those connections are not utilized specifically for drinking, consuming the water, Mm -hmm. but machinery, different processes use the potable water supply for different purposes. And wherever that interconnection is, a backflow preventer must be installed. And plumbing codes require Uh this. The reality is when we look at piping out there in the real world, sometimes too often, those backflow preventers are not where they should be, or sometimes they're not the right backflow preventer for that application. Rich, do you want to add to my that definition there? Yeah, I do a little bit. I'll, I'll take the other side of the equation, and that's backflow. And so the, the backflow component of mm-hmm. it is really relating more to the hydraulics or the, the physiology behind how, when we were talking about uh, backflow, that's the unwanted reversal of flow of liquids, solids, gases, and unknown substances back into the water supply. And so in simple terms, it's kind of like when someone has a glass of of water or their favorite beverage, uh-huh. and maybe they're sipping it, and then they, they, they look at you, Heather, and they say, Heather, you look kind of thirsty. How about, would you like a drink of my my soda uh-huh. or my my glass of water and and they just got done sneezing and coughing and so obviously you don't want to drink that because you don't want that to flow into your body similarly uh-huh. it's very similar that in our water system that uh, we don't want that water to flow from our neighbor's house uh to to our house or vice versa so it's really important to uh to be aware of those terms backflow and a cross connection Okay. And you triggered a memory of my children drinking out of my cups, <laughs> the quote unquote backflow <laughs> from, from that, where you didn't start off with a flavored water, but ended up with one. Well, Heather, the same thing with your garden hose outside that I'm sure with your children, you've told them from time to time, make sure you don't drink out of the hose. Gary and I have seen many classes where it's been a surprise to some of the students that wow, what could possibly happen? Yeah. But that garden hose gets connected to a whole bunch of things, including the the different sprayers and solutions of chemicals that we spray on the lawn and all sorts of different biological agents that can get in contact with that hose. So the last thing we want to do is be drinking out of it. Very good note to self. I never enjoyed drinking out of the hose as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Now I can tell my mom I was justified. All right. So do you have to be certified to do a backflow prevention or something like that? Or can a plumber do it? How how does this work? Yeah, great question, Heather. So when we're talking about specific types of backflow preventers, not all backflow preventers require typically an annual test, Mm -hmm. depending on state to state plumbing code. But some backflow preventers do require a performance test by a qualified person, what we're calling a certified backflow preventer tester. 
And like I said, most states have regulations that stipulate qualifications of that person. Typically, it's a 40 hour course uh-huh. above and beyond just a plumber. OK, so, uh, the specific course teaches that person to diagnose and, and repair and troubleshoot the different aspects of certain backflow preventers. Again, not all backflow preventers require a test. But some do. And where those backflow preventers require a test, it's got to be by that certified person. Got it. And that, that works for water mains and everything as well, correct? It does. Yes. Gary, I just wanted to add into that a little bit. We, we're all aware that anything mechanical is going to fail at some point in the future. And so this backflow preventer that we're talking about, especially the ones that, that are testable, that it's important to recognize that just like a seat belt in a car or perhaps a fire extinguisher in your in your building that they have to be maintained mm-hmm. and if you have an inoperable valve in this case we have a false sense of protecting our water supply and then that's when disaster can strike so it's really important that these backflow preventers uh, whether it's the testable type or the one that isn't uh-huh. Uh, that they need to be maintained because otherwise we could have a real problem. A backfill preventer, there's like multiple types, correct? More than just like a one-way check valve? Absolutely. So some of them have different vents to allow atmosphere to come in Mm -hmm. to break a vacuum. A vacuum breaker is what they would call that. And other types, they'll have a a particular spring load um, so that the spring is helping to prevent water from flowing in reverse. And so they have different, uh, different pounds per square inch or different, different uh, uh, tensions. And so it's not just a simple valve. It's a fairly sophisticated way of making sure water only goes in one direction. Gary, do you want to add anything to that? Well, I'll add a side note that all of us listening to this podcast right now have backflow preventers in our homes. I'm not sure if I mentioned this in in episode 28, but uh, your typical outside garden hose spigot, uh, there should be a backflow preventer applied to that to prevent that reverse flow of water. Uh, Even our water closet, our, our toilet tanks have on the inlet side a backflow prevention feature built into it. Now, these type, again, do not require that annual test. Often we find the testable type backflow preventers are at service connections of higher hazard type buildings Mm -hmm. or interior plumbing most often throughout a building where those hazardous connections are, such as a treated boiler system or a chemical mixing system or a piece of medical equipment that utilizes water in its process. You know, Gary, one other type of backflow preventer I think we can all relate to in our homes is at the bathtub. Uh, and a, yes. bath, a modern bathtub will have what we call a physical air gap, a separation between the end of the spout uh, and the overflow of that bathtub. Now in the past, and I used to own an older home mm-hmm. where it was one of those clawfoot tubs yeah. uh, and, and they had the, the spout of the bathtub that was actually below the overflow of the tub. So that was not correct. It had to be updated to meet the modern plumbing codes so that they created this physical gap or space to prevent backflow from occurring. Because none of us have had a bathtub that's overflown or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, by the way, washed our dogs in the bathtub. Or, yeah, not, or... no, none of that at all. Or that, that one thing the kids from, brought in from the yard. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you don't want to drink that. Yeah. Agreed. (laughs) 
this seems like something operators will see daily. You know, those who are on the water connection side and wastewater side or out servicing, these are things that they'll be seeing daily, correct? They should be if they're looking. And I pause there. If they're looking, these sort of connections are identified. And most of all, if a community has a cross-connection control program, which many states require, mm-hmm. part of that program is an activity known as an inspection or a survey to actually look for and identify undetected points of connection where uh, there's a cross-connection without a backflow preventer or an incorrect backflow preventer. So many states have activities where Either city staff or outsourced contractors are hired to manage that that program and its activities to identify where these uh, problematic uh, connections exist and eliminate them, making sure that the correct backflow preventers are installed at the building owner's expense. Mm -hmm. We have a much safer water system as a result of a cross-connection control program. Well, I I know I've worked on the industrial side and uh, sometimes they'll have shutdowns. And invariably, there's some water coming in that no one knows where it's coming from. Mm. And you know, so it's hunting that down. And once again, they find out, you know, there's a cross connection or uh, one of the check valves aren't functioning properly. It's a hard way to learn that, I think. You bring up an interesting point there, Heather, and that's uh, the unknowns of our piping systems throughout facilities is a great concern. It should be a concern of, of aging things the interior plumbing systems mm-hmm. should be a concern and i'm stressing that because of the undetected cross connections that we know exist out there when we start to look for cross connections we find them we find bypasses as you mentioned yeah. where the sole source coming into the building may not be the sole source and that can create great problems in healthcare facilities manufacturing institutions uh, you know, we've we've had scopes of work where we've traced out piping in hospitals and found many dead leg pipings that piping sections that the facility wasn't aware uh-huh. of, and that lends that lends itself to you know uh, a problem known as Legionella outbreaks, which we've heard in the news, where certain conditions of potable water piping mm-hmm. can influence that outbreak of Legionella within the water quality. And uh, and really unfortunate things can happen as a result of that. And Rich, I think you can speak more to this from a prevention standpoint. Oh, absolutely. You know, Legionella is something that uh, many of us have heard of. It's been um, a problem that's been reported in the news it dates all the way back to the 1976 convention in Philadelphia yep. where legionnaires were actually at a convention and many of them became sick. And uh, the the area of transmission uh, in many cases were things like shower heads. So if you could imagine if, if this bacteria, Legionella, was in your water supply, that you could actually drink it and not get sick. But if you're in a shower where that water is now misting uh-huh. and you breathe it in and then it gets into your lungs. And especially if you have a compromised immune system or you're in a weakened condition, these are the people who can become seriously sick uh, or unfortunately worse. So Legionella is definitely a, an important uh, issue to contend with. Fortunately, that there are now different things we can do to reduce the amount of Legionella in a plumbing system by way of filtration, by way of sterilization and other things that we can do, but uh, it's still definitely a concern. I appreciate you going over that because every once in a while I, I, you know, when you've got that weird faucet 
that's been sitting out there for a while, you're like, ah, that hasn't been ran for a while or the uh, fountain or something like that. You're like, it hasn't been ran for a while. Ah, exactly. Makes you a little nervous. Or if you take a trip out to Las Vegas and you're walking past one of those those uh, fountains or the misters that they have to cool people off. Yeah. Yeah. Make, make sure you don't suck all that air in because it, uh, <laughs> there, there's some issues with that. Oh, great. One so more thing to worry of... about. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I'm not sure if you've ever been to one of the, the stores that uh, has what they call a life straw, but uh, the life straw was intended for campers and outdoors folks that, uh, need to get a drink of water and they could they could tap yeah. this straw into a river yeah. a river that might not have safe water and what happens is they're using this this uh, filter called a called a hollow fiber membrane mm-hmm. a hollow fiber membrane which will then take out these pathogens the bacteria the the cysts and so forth that are going to harm us and so at least that water can be safe to drink well, we've taken that same technology and that's now being used both at the shower head itself as well as at the point of entry into buildings oh, cool. to, if you will, filter out the bacteria. Mm-hmm. Now, there's in many cases still the Legionella bacteria within the piping system, so you need to do a lot of flushing, but this can be uh, a great reduction in the amount of bacteria in that water system. Mentioning the using that that life straw, it reminds me a little too much of my microbiology class where we had all of our pipettes were the mouth ones. It uh-huh. had that just that little cotton bit between you and what you were sucking up. Yeah. <laughs> a leap of faith when you when you when you're close to it, because you know, on one side is something you shouldn't be drinking or shouldn't have in your body. Yeah. And then the other side is supposedly safe. And you know, to that end, these straws will allow the dissolved solids, the salts, mm-hmm. uh, or in the case of uh, many water utilities, use chlorine as a disinfectant so that that chlorine will flow right through the straw, even though it will take out the bacteria. So it's it's important to note that it's it's not like what you call reverse osmosis filtration, which takes everything out virtually, uh, but rather it uh, takes out just the stuff we don't want to be ingesting such as the bacteria so note to self uh save that for the apocalypse and carry bottled water or potable water or something with the uh because we don't want people going out sucking streams water just for fun just Just for fun fun. okay so let's go from that to transition to lead pipes i mean you know Mm. what are those current issues that you guys are seeing with those well uh, gary if i could just speak to this for a moment that uh way back when and i'm going to use my age here a little bit in 1974, 1974, there was the Safe Drinking Water Act, mm-hmm. and this was a very, very important uh, bit of legislation that was passed through Congress. And what that meant was that whether you were in New York or Los Angeles or Madison, Wisconsin, that when you went to go get a drink of water from your your faucet, that the water coming out, that we want to provide a certain minimum level of safety. Uh Uh, So they have what they call maximum contaminant levels. So the water utilities are are bound by this this law to make sure that they're testing for all sorts of different things that could be in the water supply. So a little bit 
later on in the year 2014, mm -hmm. there was a, an addendum to the Safe Drinking Water Act that included lead. So in, in other words, at that point, the Safe Drinking Water Act was uh, amended and updated to be looking for certain amounts of lead that could be in the water supply. And they discovered uh, many years ago that lead is very, very counterproductive to human development. Yeah. Um, in fact, th there is no safe level. level. Uh, it's really to reduce the lead in the water supply. So it was termed as the Lead Reduction Act. And so that was a really important change that we had to our to our Safe Water Act uh, back in the year 2014, this addendum. And we see the, the repercussions in the last 10 years that if you don't take care of it, what can happen to communities, to the more vulnerable of the population. So yeah, children that are developing their, their brains, the, their nervous system, children can be adversely affected. Of course, everyone, whether you're an adult or a child, that it can be a really big issue to contend with. Fortunately, there are now filters and different things that could be put into your water system mm -hmm. to help reduce or take out entirely lead. But part of this Lead Reduction Act was that manufacturers had to alter the, the material uh, of construction. So in other words, back in the day, they, they used to have what they called a brass material mm -hmm. that would have lead as well as copper and tin and zinc and other elements. Yes, yeah, nice composite. So with, yep, nice composite. So, of course, what they had to do is remove the lead from the casting, which really brought forth a whole array of, of challenges that manufacturers had and how to do that because the lead uh, really made the product more pliable, more mm -hmm. workable to machine, as well as contractors made it easier to install. So when they took the lead out, they had to come up with other formulations to accommodate that. Uh -huh. And uh, fortunately here in, in the year 2023, that uh, they've really refined the product and come up with alternate materials to, to uh, take that lead out of our water system, thankfully. Awesome. Gary, what are your thoughts? Well, here's my thoughts. I mean, as I'm thinking about the, the technical people in our audience out there may be wondering, well, wait a minute, why are we talking about lead pipes and Legionella if this is about backflow prevention? I want to connect the dots here. Okay. And when we're looking for cross connections and an active cross connection control program, lead pipes, unused piping sections known as dead legs, these sort of uh, portable water piping connections and conditions should be part of a cross connection survey meaning that when a, when a utility has a program in place and somebody, either utility staff or qualified contractors, looking for those unprotected cross connections, absolutely, they should also be looking for piping materials that are not compliant, such as lead, uh -huh. and also those conditions that allow Legionella to proliferate. So this, I just want to tie that into why we're talking about lead and Legionella on a, on, a, on a podcast about backflow prevention. It really goes hand in hand. We're looking at pipes, one, to save money on multiple visits, looking for backflow preventers, assessing whether a service connection is safe or if it needs improvement with backflow preventers. Absolutely, we should be looking for those piping conditions that also can contaminate the water. You're already there, right? Might as well, right. <laughs> might as well do all of it. Two birds with one stone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Heather and Gary, I had this uh, old home that I was referring to earlier mm -hmm. with my clawfoot tub. Well, when the contractor came over to our house to do some installation work, 
they had to cut out some of the old galvanized piping. Um, okay. And I was amazed just how the crusty buildup of corrosion over an extended period of time yeah. uh, that I was amazed how water actually even got through there, <laughs> let alone to be drinking out of it. And so one of the reasons this is really relevant, in addition to the just the cosmetic part of it, that it, it didn't look good, mm -hmm. but more to the point of, of public health is that bacteria can hide behind that corrosion so that that interior wall of the piping system, when you see that crusty buildup, the scale and so forth, that the Legionella can actually hide behind that. And so what can happen under different conditions like backflow or piping disruptions, mm -hmm. that it can like shake loose and then flow further into your piping system. And so having clean pipes and, uh, and you know, making sure that things are maintained properly really is an important issue. I have to say, I love coming out of a podcast more paranoid than when I came into it. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, run every, you know, turn on every faucet, flush it all out. The good news though, is that there's a lot of easy things that can be done in terms of improving plumbing systems and the modern materials of construction mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the things that can be done now with filtration we can really make plumbing much safer. It's really an evolved trade when you think about plumbing. You know, since the very beginning, uh, things have gotten better and better, uh, not only in terms of ease for the contractor to install material, but uh, very importantly for the consumer to be drinking out of clean substances. And so that we're not drinking out of a lead pipe anymore. We're, you know, we're, we're drinking out of, out of things that are, are safe for us all. Well, and that brings up a, a good point. I mean, do public water supply systems have the appropriate measures to prevent that contamination? Mm. Gary, do you want to take this oh. one? Because I have some things to add to <laughs> this it. This might well. be a loaded <laughs> question. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here we go. You know, Heather, I, I feel overall, yes, uh, public water systems across the nation have a very good handle on measures in place to prevent backflow. Mm -hmm. Where some areas fall short is in having a comprehensive cross-connection control program where it's not required by the state regulations to have such a program. Some states have very relaxed rules for maintaining a cross-connection control program. And those are the areas where we're vulnerable uh -huh. because there's no activities happening to detect these unprotected cross-connections that lurk in our piping systems out of sight, out of mind, until there's that change in pressure and uh, we wind up on the evening news or sooner in our pocket on our phones uh -huh. with boil order alerts because the water's contaminated. So I can say with confidence, doing a great job. Okay, we know. Uh, no, I'm speaking just for cross-connection control, okay? So there's can always always be room for improvement. And I think the first step uh, utilities should take is education on the topic. Whatever you're doing now, learn more of it, okay? Yeah. But I'd say overall in the industry, utilities are doing a good job. But in areas, like I said, where there's lax regu regulations, you know, literally from one state to another, I can compare Wisconsin regulations to another state and they're dramatically different. Uh -huh. 
uh, as far as cross connection control regulations. And that does affect the safety and the situations within our plumbing con conditions when there's not as much oversight. Wisconsin has very, very strict cross connection control rules and regulations and utilities uh, over the years have evolved to compliance, very high numbers of compliance for those regulations. You go across, you know, to different other states and they have different regulations or not as detailed regulations. And those are the regions that I'm concerned about when we look to spread more education in those regions to help protect the water. Okay. You know, Gary, at some of our classes that we've had, uh, we'll ask kind of an opening question to all the students and, yeah. and considering that this, this room is filled with plumbing contractors. We have water operators that are working for water utilities. Mm -hmm. We have various people that, that touch that, that piping system. And we'll ask the question, how many of you gotten a phone call recently from your customers just to say, hey, thank you. Thank you for providing that nice <laughs> drinking water. And, uh, and never? My, <laughs> never? And that's my point is that that water utilities and to Gary's point of all the regulations that we have, we, we literally have thousands and thousands of people out there who are concerned about our water supply and delivering safe water and protecting the water. Mm -hmm. All that being said, that the amount of people who are aware how critical this is, is fairly sparse. We, in other words, we take it for granted. Yeah. You wake up in the morning, you jump in the shower, or you turn it on your kitchen faucet, and we assume we assume that safe water is going to come out. Yeah. And so that assumption is kind of ironic because you know we, we know that what are we made of as a human species? We're largely made of water, and you know how long can we survive on planet Earth if we don't have safe water. So we all know instinctively, like it's really important, but yet when it comes to how much money we want to spend on making that water clean, it's limited. And so while water utilities are doing a very admirable job, that they're also hamstrung to the amount of resources and yeah. money that is going to be given to each utility to maintain and upgrade those piping systems. In Madison, uh, Wisconsin, which is where I live, uh -huh. uh, we've had in the news uh, recently lots of stories about these forever chemicals. Oh, yeah, PFAS. PFAS. And that's poly, mm -hmm. uh, polyperfluoral alkyl substances for those who don't and know them. Heather, this is why you were a, a water chemist or you have that kind of background. And, and <laughs> thank you for being able to pronounce that properly. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I get caught. I, know, I, I can't say it five times fast, but I can say it once. So, <laughs> Yes. But in all seriousness, that when they went to try and remove that from the water supply, while it's fairly easy to do on your own with things like a reverse osmosis filter or other specialized filters that you can put into your home or your business, but to do it on a mass scale for a water utility yeah. is a very, very expensive proposition. Yes. So who's going to pay for all these things is always a consideration. And unfortunately, water in many cases gets uh, underappreciated on a regular basis. I really think there could be more PR and more education. You know, I would love to know that my kids have been to a water plant and a wastewater plant because I like wastewater mm -hmm. too. But I think it's really important for them to see it because like you said, we forget. 
And, yes. you know, they don't, no one calls us with adulation saying my water was beautiful today. Thank you. I will say though, that like the city I'm in, when they were exercising the fire hydrants in my area, we got a notification saying the water's going to look funny. It's going to have color. It's going to, you know, might have particles or something. This is what's happened. Oh, this yeah. is what you should do. And that kind of raises your awareness. Oh, there's someone in charge of this. There's someone monitoring this. That they know, they get it. Yeah. And so you probably weren't surprised when you did get home and there was some sand or grit yeah. or something that was in your faucet aerator. And But at least you had a heads up. You You were made aware of that. So I know many utilities will send out notices when there is going to be main flushing and things of this sort that will stir up that water system. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're doing a good job. Yeah. I honestly believe the water industry as a whole is one of the hardest working groups of people that we never know. Absolutely. (laughs) That we never see. (laughs) Okay. Well, since you guys have shared the classroom together and been teaching classes for so long, what are three lessons you've learned from that experience? Only three. Well, okay. Wow. We'll, we'll keep Rich, it to the top Rich, favorite three. Rich, do you remember the first class we did? We were, oh boy, I, I chuckle because we were in, oh boy, we overprepared in all the wrong areas. And I, I know one lesson for me that I learned over time was set up and get to the class way before any of the students arrive. So that when students are arriving in the classroom, you're, you're prepared to greet them, you're prepared, you're at ease, and it makes all the difference in the world as an instructor when you're at ease, when people start to enter the room, and I mean before the class starts, mm-hmm. it transforms the rest of the day. Now, when Rich and I do classes, our typical class is six hours, you know, with breaks in between and a lunch, but still, that's a lot of it's time. a marathon. Yeah. It, it really is, you know, and uh And so I I found that being prepared ahead of time so you're available for your students when they arrive, it makes all the difference in the world. Okay. Gary, I totally agree with that because unless you're a really good multitasker, when you're trying to plug in the the AV equipment (laughs) and and (laughs) do this and that and the other, then the the student who wants to be there early just to get their full uh, participation and they're trying to have a conversation with you as you're doing five things at the same time. So I love your idea of get there early to be prepared. You know, one other thing is, is that to share the space with the students so that when Gary and I are going back and forth about the, the topic, that it's really great to have interaction with the students. And back to, I think, one of the original points that was made about just how each class can be different because of the content of who's in the audience mm-hmm. and they'll take us in a different direction or somebody will chat about something or maybe we have to bring up you know wanting to get their opinion or their thoughts on a, on a particular subject so really sharing the space so it becomes a team approach as opposed to just two people up there talking all day long it's it's a lot easier to share yeah you know i'll add the third one here and it's something that rich and i started i think probably the second or third class we did is uh we made it a uh, a practice to do a, a group sh- a class photo just like we you know we, we did when we were kids uh-huh. you know uh, you know the, the yearbook was the, was our social media and it came out once a year right true and so rich and i always insist that all the students gather with us at the end of the, the week-long class of six day six hour classes at the end of the week on friday we always do a a group shot of us in the lobby usually 15 to 25 people 
And, uh, you know, it's a moment in history where we've shared knowledge for a period of time and we come out of it different people. At least I feel our students do. I know Rich and I do because it's, it's an experience. And so versus just teaching and in a lesson, I think if an instructor or a teacher can make it an experience, I feel it's a better way to learn if it's an experience versus just textbook and an exam and boom, you're out of there. You got your piece of paper. Okay. So I would say uh, make it, uh, make it social, make it social, make it more fun. I've taught classes like that too, where, you know, it's all day and it's like, all right, we're in this together. (laughs) We're in this together. So, you know, going from that, what are, what are some of the tricks of the trade that you would use or uh, mention to help simplify the complexities we're dealing with, with backflow and cross connection issues? You know, Heather, on, on that note too, and the tricks of the trade, that I'm not sure if it's really a trick mm-hmm. or it's really just, here's the really brutally honest truth. Okay. And that is, this is an honorable profession. So meaning that, that we know that people take the water for granted. And so who is it that's going to step in to help inform the, the owner of the home or the owner of the business to let them know that, hey, if we just do a little bit here, it can make a difference literally between getting sick or worse mm-hmm. um, and, and not. And so when they get done with this class and, and they know that it's important for them to convey this information, it's, there's, it's not a matter of just simply hooking up a valve or to, uh, to test it, but rather to communicate. And the, the, the real important message there is that as that new student is going off into the world, mm-hmm. uh, meeting with their clients and, and telling them about the backflow preventer and why this is so important, that they're literally saving lives. It's an honorable profession. So I just wanted to put that in there too. It's, it's really not a trick. Yeah. It's, it's really just telling the truth. Well said, Rich. Well said. Are there any other like lessons learned that you'd like to share from the field? Well, here's one thing. We don't have to overthink some of these backflow preventers that next time we we decide at our house to to wash our car mm-hmm. or to um, water our rose bush and so forth to make sure that you're literally creating an air gap space. So no, I used to back when I was a kid uh, and I didn't know about all these different hydraulic conditions, I would take the garden hose and throw it into our, our family swimming pool and just let the sw- swimming pool fill up never thinking yeah. that I'm creating a cross connection. It's a real simple thing to do to make sure you always keep a separation between the end of your hose and whatever you're you're getting wet, whether it's a bucket of, of uh, soapy water, like you're washing your car mm-hmm. or that swimming pool, or maybe it's a backyard pond. So you don't have to overthink this. Let's use some common sense. Okay. I'm just thinking of all the times I might not have been as good at that as I could have. Dang it. <laughs> so if my kids are warped, it's for a reason. Okay. Gary, how about you? And that's a great point, Rich. As we look at this problem, cross-connection, control, backflow, prevention, we're surrounded by it. Rich, you listed off numerous examples there. We're literally surrounded by this topic wherever we go, in our homes, in our uh, you know restaurants, facilities, wherever there's water piping, this problem is there. And, you know, in a perfect world, if uh, all these rules and regulations are followed and things are installed properly in our potable water plumbing systems, 
nothing happens. Nothing at all happens. There's no water contamination. Everything's great. Or as my dad would say, hunky dory. Yeah. I still don't know what that means. <laughs> but, well, and it always comes but, as hunky dory. It's never hunky. It's never dory. It's together. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, we want to prevent backflow, mm-hmm. not react to it. And uh, a quick Google or YouTube, you can find how unfortunately utilities, public water systems and facilities have had to react to a backflow situation. And it is not pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, a boil water alert for a water utility is nothing fun to go through. It's got to be documented. There's all kinds of activities. And often those boil water alerts are a result of a backflow situation, either unpredicted water main break Uh or water main flushing. Regardless, we want to prevent backflow rather than reacting to it. So Heather, I think this kind of lends to Wanda's water tidbit, doesn't it? Well, uh, we're going to transition to that next, but uh, yeah, we are going to be talking about boiling water, but in a different way. So this is the part of the show that's dedicated to my mother and it's where we celebrate the unusual and sometimes brilliant things about water. And we're going to talk about the Amazonian boiling river in Peru. What? Yeah. So it's completely different kind of boil. (laughs) Wow. And for many years, it, A lot of people thought it was a legend. It's a fable. There aren't active volcanoes in Peru. And so a lot of people are just like, this is just crazy. And I'm going to probably slaughter a name. I'm trying not to, but the local name is Shinai Timbisha, which means boiled with the heat of the sun. So it's interesting because the the legend around it is that the Spanish conquistadors uh, were sent to go look for gold, and they came across this poisoned water, man-eating snakes, and a river that boiled from below. So really, they were trying to prevent the conquistadors from finding anything more, uh, which I think is you know kind of a nice trap if you're going to do it that way. <laughs> uh, the, this river, though, it's about 25 meters or 82 feet wide, 6 meters or 20 feet deep, and runs hot for uh, about 6.24 kilometers or 3.9 miles long. So this is a long bit of road. Wow. Yeah, it's wide, it's long, and it's hot. It gets up to about 100 degrees Celsius, and it is protected by a local shaman. So <laughs> it's rather unique that way as well. Uh, basically, you know, at 100 degrees, it's enough to cook small animals. So, you know, you want to cook a meal there maybe, but uh, be cautious bathing in it, I would say. That might not be a good thing. Have you guys come across that before? This is fascinating. Wow. I noticed the 212 degrees Fahrenheit, which, you know, some people relate more to Celsius oh, and some yes. are more uh, aware of Fahrenheit. But that 212 is also an important number because isn't that having to do with atmospheric boiling point? It's not what you want to experience. Right. <laughs> we, we can get yeah. super nerdy about that as well. But I'm like, you know, the hottest sauna I've been in is 110, 115. I live in Arizona. We've gotten up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm like, I'm I'm out. If we're ever going towards 200, I'm out of the state. Yeah, 212 is pretty hot. Yeah. Well, and what, what is interesting, though, is that this water is actually a rainwater that's percolated through the ground. And the geoscientist Andres Ruzo thinks that as far away as maybe the Andes, this water is seeping into the ground, getting heated by geothermal energy and then coming up in the Amazon. Wow. Yeah. 
So I've been to Yellowstone and that was probably as close as I want to get, you know, those little boardwalks over the steamy water. That's as close as I want to get to this kind of stuff. I don't know if you guys have been to Yellowstone as well. Many years ago as a child, and I still remember that's where we have Old Faith, yes. correct? Is, yeah. And uh, you don't want to look down. <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, yeah. True. What is interesting about this Boiling River as well is that it has a unique geothermal profile compared to Yellowstone because the mineral composition is always changing, but the microbiology there is super unique as well. And so they have uh, Dr. Rosa Vasquez Espinoza leading up several different groups to map these microbes and seeing where they fit in our world. And I'm like, great, more microbes in our water. <laughs> That's exactly what we need. But, you know, they've been there for a long time, right? Yeah. So. This is a fascinating tidbit. Uh, I'm, I'm rather speechless right now because of usually when Rich and I are talking about water and, and thermal, you know, thermal expansion from boiled water or heated pipes, I should say, uh -huh. it's often the result is back pressure in potable water systems. And this happens often. Rich, you deal with a lot of heating systems and facilities. Sure. This 212 is, is a major issue in the plumbing world because it can cause problems. It definitely can cause back pressure. So th this is an interesting twist on boiling water <laughs> in a river that's occurring naturally. That sure is. The, you know, the uh, water heater itself, uh, uh, hopefully it, your water heater is protected with what they call a temperature and pressure relief valve. Mm -hmm. And that, that valve is there for a reason that in the past when they first developed water heaters and they didn't have these safety valves, if that uh, steam came out, in other words, you flash from the atmospheric boiling point, what would happen is the water heater would literally blow up. Yeah. And they, they have this on Mythbusters and, and they used to call it danger explosion lurks where they'd have water heaters blowing up. So on one hand, water, when it's superheated like that, can be very powerful and cause destruction. And then on the other side, you know, here when we have a backflow condition or a cross connection that's going on, that the water utilities will actually require their customers to boil the water, hoping to kill the bacteria. So <laughs> you can either love it or hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm adding the Amazon boiling river to my bucket list. But I'm not going to add an exploding water heater to my bucket list. <laughs> I, I already had one blow, not blow up, but the connection came off and water everywhere. And it was, that was an interesting thing. But yeah. That sounds like an interesting topic for a future discussion about how to prevent leaks. True. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and inspecting yes. your plumbing. All right. All right. We're not going there again. But all right, Gary and Rich, I am so glad you guys joined us today and appreciate you talking about these backflow and cross-connection issues. We want to tell our listeners, if you have any questions, please feel free to, to contact Gary and Rich directly. Their contact information will be in the show notes. Thank you, gentlemen. Heather, it's been our pleasure. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Great, and thank you for joining us today. You bet. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulants and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. You can find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com. <laughs>